0: This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. I'm Alex Rawls, and this is my podcast about Christmas music. Today, I'm revisiting one of the podcasts I recorded last December. At the time, pianist George Winston released a version of Silent Night, influenced by electronic music composer Joseph Byrd and New Orleans piano players, particularly Professor Longhair. And we talked about that release on an episode last Christmas season. But there was more to the conversation than that. We talked about his December album and had a larger conversation about Christmas music and his music in general. Winston is best known for his solo piano work. He was one of the artists who put Wyndham Hill record label on the map with what came to be called New Age music. He's rejected that label for good reason. New Age has come to connote a music with loose ties to a lot of things but insufficiently committed to anything to make it distinctive. Winston's work reflects a clear personal point of view, whether he's exploring the New Orleans piano tradition or the topography of his native Montana. He's not firmly in any camp, but he's not making music for crystals either. When I posted the completions to some of the podcasts from last season, I only posted the parts I didn't use the first time. Now, we're five months from the time when I ran the first part of this interview. And I think enough time has passed that those who listen the first time won't find it repetitive to listen to the whole thing. And those who are hearing it for the first time would rather hear the whole conversation, including the stuff on New Orleans Piano Players. If you listened to the first part last December, A, thanks, and B, I'll understand if you skip ahead of it. Before we get to George Winston, I want to turn to Dale Watson, a very different musician. Dale Watson knows his lane. The Texas-based singer and guitarist makes twangy honky-tonk music and is the modern-day king of the trucker song. Watson's grown as an artist in the last 20 years, but not so much that the passage of time is obvious because he knows what his core strengths are and focuses on them. In 2001, he released Christmas Time in Texas. And like almost everything he recorded in the decades before or the 2 cents It felt like a middle finger to Nashville for moving away from the sound that made the city famous. But it's a good-natured middle finger, because Watson hones in on the sound and subject matter that he loves. He makes every song sound easy, starting with Honky Tonk Christmas, which effortlessly adds honky-tonk as an adjective to a series of holiday nouns.
1: I want a honky-tonk Christmas Honky-tonk cheer And honky-tonk music Honking and a talking right here I need a honky-tonk beauty Seven honky talking bit I want a honky-tonk Christmas And a honky-tonk New Year
0: There's a lot to like on the album, including the title track and Christmas in Vegas, which does its part to bring Elvis to mind. He also embraces the story song, which doesn't get the play it used to. He uses it in the closing track, You Can Call Me Nick, which is a Christmas miracle story that takes place in the city jail with a weathered, filthy, bearded stranger who, interestingly, looked like an immigrant. Watson also tells a story on Santa and My Semi, ...in which the singer loans his truck to Santa so he can deliver the toys. It's how the trucker saved Christmas. And I love it because first, it's how the trucker saved Christmas. I also love it because Watson is so at home in this sound that I can't resist it. And I love how throughout the album, Watson treats the songs like a songwriting exercise... ...and one that he takes very seriously. He figures out how to make his persona and musical world coincide with Christmas iconography and delivers it with the same authority that he sings about heartbreak and hope. I often find Christmas albums wear a little after a while, but Dale Watson's Christmas Time in Texas holds up all the way through. We'll hear Santa and My Semi, and then we'll be back on the other side with George Winston.
1: Driving through East Texas Last Christmas Eve i saw santa jack Knight up around my ski he sent rudolph and the reindeer back to the north Pole, so i loaned him my semi to help him with his load he put his foot down on the pedal he made that diesel wine he had to get them presents to the girls and the boys on time a gear jam and kris kringle at 18 wheels of fly he'll be on your way come Christmas Day. Santa in my semi.
0: You recently released a version of Silent Night with sales of the track going to Feeding America. Tell me about the project.
2: Well, I've been working with uh, food banks and Feeding America since 1986. At um, concerts, we always... Uh, ask people to bring cans of food and buy the local food bank. And then the, the uh, food bank always gets the proceeds from all the merchandise, you know, the CDs. And um, so I, I uh, first heard Joseph Bird's Silent Night in, in uh, 1975, and I just loved it. And it's really Caribbean-influenced. And so eventually after decades, I said, I got to try to play this. So I use a a modified bass inspired by Professor Longhair in the left hand. And then uh, some of the feeling that Joseph Bird had with the right hand, uh, right hand things, even though it turns out the tempo I do is uh, quite a bit different, you know, the... Uh, the rhythm is a bit different, but it's definitely inspired by uh, Joseph Byrd's great version. You can find it on YouTube. you got to look a little bit. It's Joseph Byrd, B-Y-R-D, as in Roy Byrd, Professor Longhair. No relation. No relation.
0: I have to say, I was surprised uh, to go to uh, Joseph Byrd because, I mean, I know that record uh, as one of a— as as an album of like synthesizer that's analog synthesizers and
2: yeah it's a multi-track synthesizers of the time and I'm not a synthesizer guy at all but um I had a little bit of interest in listening back in the 70s but his arrangements are just so great can you tell can you
0: tell me what what you liked about his arrangements cuz I have to admit to be fair I, I love that record but I am so honed in on just the sound I, I love Moogs I love analog synths and I was so drawn to the sound that I have to admit I may never have actually really heard the musicality of his performances because that kind of uh, sound is so arresting to me and
2: yeah I, he's a, I, he's very multifaceted he had a great rock band in the late 60s called the United States of America. And then he later had a band called Joseph Bird and the Field Hippies, which featured the the late great uh, guitarist Ted Green. That's Green with an E on the end. Right. And uh, you probably know Phil Degree, right?
0: Yes, definitely.
2: Yeah, he's one of Phil's biggest inspirations. Ted is. Okay. And... And then Joseph, uh, he's a modern composer too, but he also did three. He did three albums for Tacoma Records, John the late guitarist John Fahey's label. That I was also on in the early seventies, which is how I found out about the record. Okay, Joseph Bird also did kind of a bicentennial record with the synthesizers, and then later he did a record of eighteen hundreds choir music. But he's also had a—I uh, wasn't able to attend because I was working, but he had a, a modern classical concert featuring suites for 17 trombones in the 70s. So he's just so multifaceted. It was a time-life kind of Christmas record, I think, that they had him do arrangements for. So he's kind of been all over the place. I, you're probably familiar with Ray Cooter.
0: Yes, definitely.
2: He had an album called Jazz— about 1977, and Joseph Byrd was uh, the main arranger for the uh, orchestra on that record. Oh, okay. So he's kind of all, he's kind of all over the place. Oh, how interesting! I, 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 In fact, Ted Ted Green arranged one of the songs on that record too. So, small world. <laughs> <right>. <laughs>
0: mentioned Professor Longhair, and in, in, in you've mentioned uh, your that uh, Fess is an influence a number of times. What about his playing drew you in?
2: Well, in 1977, I quit playing because I couldn't be Fats Waller, <laughs> not, not realizing that nobody else could either. I mean, uh, and then I heard. Professor Longhair's recordings in 1979 and I started playing again. So I always tell people James Booker is how I play the piano, basically, but Professor Longhair is why I play the piano. <laughs> and then Henry Butler enhance enhances everything else. So it's basically those three are by far my biggest influences and inspirations for playing. And I'm still working on it. Of course. John Cleary, Dr. John, Alan Toussaint, Tom McDermott, Josh Paxton. Uh, I'm sure, you know, Tom Worrell, I'm sure you know all these great sure. players. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. um, and so many great players in New Orleans. I know, I either know or know of all of them. Right. From 1870 to, to now. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's really the only pianists I really listen to and study, are what you call the New Orleans School of Playing, which has a gumbo of influences from Caribbean to jazz to all kinds of things. It's just a unique place on the planet for uh, everything, but especially piano. I tell people New Orleans is the center of the universe for piano, drums, clarinet trumpet trombone and tuba
0: right <laughs>
2: and yet it, it's a Caribbean island that's coincidentally attached to a continent
0: <laughs> <So>. right <laughs> yeah I'll tell you it was funny I, I spoke a number of years, a few years ago to uh, Jonathan to John Batiste. after he yeah, released a
2: fantastic player
0: also yeah amazing uh, and uh, saw and he'd released his uh, first album under the name Stay Human before he was a part of Stephen Colbert's show. And, you know, and he had his drummer playing uh, tambourine on much of that album as well. And I was asking him about, you know, if it was intentional to make so much of his music sound like parade music. And he said, there's just there are only two or three ways that people play uh, play, uh, tambourine outside of the church. And New Orleans pretty much defined all of them, so you if you're going to play a tambourine and you're not playing gospel, you're playing New Orleans street music and uh and I feel like like the New Orleans piano players have that have almost have that kind of that kind of sort of defining uh, quality uh, for a whole sort of a whole approach to the instrument,
2: yes exactly, yeah, and I there's similar. A bit similar when I play the folk piano that I'm best known for the melodic stuff that comes from Eastern Montana where I grew up. So uh, you know where you grow up with, or where you spend your and or where you spend your time, it, it seeps into you.
0: How do you make those two musical worlds coincide? Because on one hand, like I listen to December and there's so much space in that music and so many sounds left hanging uh, beautifully. And at the same time, and then, you know, in the New Orleans style is so much about sounds rolling on top of each other and about influences, you know, finding their way together in one uh, yeah, you know, in two hands.
2: Yeah, exactly. I think the um, well, because of the t- because of the actual region on Earth where it comes from, the wide open spaces of eastern Montana. That's where the music comes from. Not any music tradition. Not any particular tradition. Whereas in New Orleans, now you're in an urban area. With all kinds of things going on, Montana is only one thing going on. <laughs> Eastern Montana, in particular, right, and that's just the seasons and the uh, flatlands, right, and uh, both extremely profound to me. Um, so, really, you could say the folk piano is kind of winter, and the New Orleans R and B piano is kind of summer. I tell people if they want to learn, just go and absorb. Go to Frenchman Street. Absolutely. See John Cleary all you can. <laughs>
0: I've
2: been studying John Cleary since six, since eighty seven. Right. Always so many things to learn, you know. Absolutely. Do
0: you remember your first exposure to Professor Longhair? In
2: nineteen seventy-nine, I got from the I got from the library. I'd quit playing, so I had a lot more time to listen to things. And so I was at the library in Los Angeles um, and I saw his New Orleans piano record, the one with the black cover on Atlantic from reissues of his 1949, 1953 tracks. And I put that on and I said, this is the most wonderful thing I've ever heard. I think I can do this. But it it took me 35 years till 2014 to really come to terms what to do with his music and all New Orleans pianists go through that. It just takes me longer than anybody I know to do anything. So <laughs> it takes as long as it takes. And the thing with Fritz Longyear's music, if I play it exactly like him, it doesn't sound right. And if I don't play it like him, it doesn't sound right either. So you just have to sort of wake up one day and go, oh, okay, I'm going to slow this down. I'll play a James Booker left hand, and I'm going to... Um, maybe change the key or change the tempo or something. So eventually uh, it comes, but, and I realize that all New Orleans pianists go through that with him. You know, it's just so beautiful. You just, uh, you know, Alan, Alan Toussaint found his own way with it. Dr. John found his own way with it. Henry Butler found his own way with it. John Cleary did. James Booker did himself. Um, I mean, so so much, so much inspiration. Henry Butler, too, but Henry Butler is so difficult. Yes. Really, it took me 22 years to figure out what to do with his music. And that's to really kind of enhance with certain ways. But I'm not really a Henry Butler player. I'm definitely a James Booker player. When I, James Booker's language is the way I think of the piano. I, right. I heard him three years, his recordings three years after I heard Professor Longhair. I said, immediately, that's the way to play the piano. It took me like six years to really come to terms with it. Um, but his, studying him gave me the means to play a lot of songs. You know, right. oh, okay. I'll use this James Booker bass. I'll use this James Booker bass. Oh, I'll vary one of his basses and, or maybe expand it or contract it. So I mean, so I'm so fortunate to have these mentors.
0: Now, when you were, when you do a song like "Silent Night," and you're bringing these influences together, is the actual subject matter neutral, or does the subject matter determine, like a song like "Silent Night" and the Christmas song, does it force you to sort of move the, you know, sort of move the pieces this way or that way to make them make sense?
2: Well, the original version that I heard. Of course, it's very much part of the equation. And then the instrument I'm playing on, like what does the piano seem to want? Or if it ends up being a guitar solo guitar piece. Uh, and then what do I want to do? So those three things kind of enter in. Uh, I wouldn't have thought to do Silent Night Up tempo except for Joseph Bird's version, which I listened to and loved for decades and decades. And finally... One day I just said, oh, I'm going to play it. I'm not just going to like it. So um, and it turns out Dr. John actually did a great up-tempo version, too. You probably know his album, Dr. John Plays Mac Rabinac. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, it wasn't on the original album. It was issued as a bonus track many, many years later. So I didn't hear that version uh, until after, you know, a long time. It was really it was really the Joseph Bird approach, kind of the Caribbean approach. Uh, I don't know, kind of like you you hear a song for somebody and you want to play it, and then since it's solo piano and not synthesizer, you know it's going to come out different. And then I'm a different person from Joseph, so eventually it's going to come out different over time.
0: Sure. You know, I always think that's that's a thing that I've been really fascinated by. And here, one of my fascinations has been how traditions come forward and how, how traditional music interacts with, contem- with contemporary times. And, you know, there's there are people here who are making traditional jazz, but they're making traditional jazz with a whole different musical vocabulary than the people who made it in the 20s or 30s made it that. You know, people in the 20s or 30s hadn't heard, you know, Paul McCartney and John Lennon. And they hadn't heard Burt Bacharach. And they hadn't heard all these people who have changed the way we think about melody. And um,
2: yeah, New, Orleans, New Orleans Rhythm and Blues Piano hadn't been invented yet.
0: Exactly right. And uh, so I find it really fascinating that on what, you know, to think about how these, you know, how in some way, as you say, you're a different person than Joseph Byrd. So even with the same arrangement, same tempo, same song, you're still going to take it places that he didn't take it because you have a different different musical experience that brings you to the moment when you played it.
2: Yeah, some of the things he did on the multi-track synthesizer, uh, they just didn't sound quite right on the piano. So I definitely studied his version. And then my tempo was a little bit different um, you know, studying somebody's version and then you start playing it and then you kind of go into, well, I kind of want to do this. You know, I kind of want to do that. So definitely, that's what, to me, interpreting is all about. Uh, I mentioned before, the original version, the instrument that I'm playing it on and the fact that it's solo, um, which is all I do. And then now, now that I know... and, you know the instrument will also dictate what key. Um, like certain keys might be too thick or a little too thin on the piano. So once I study the original or the source, and then determine on the instrument what key to play it in. Then it's up to me. Okay, now who am I? So right. really, but it's all kind of three equal elements. I mean, I have the final say being the player, but it's kind of like there are three entities going on here, but I have to make the final decision. I've wanted to play the piece for decades, but it's just kind of like, well, how do you deal with all the synthesizer sounds and all the steel drum sounds? And um, the way he stays on the same three chords at the end goes away from the melody. I mean, that was just unbelievable. I said, I've got to, inc- how do I incorporate that? <laughs> then, yeah. Let's see, so I guess I've been working on it since 1975. Wow. Let's see, 85, 95, 2000. I guess um, over 40 years. If things take <laughs> as long as they take, you know?
0: You've been really upfront throughout your career about talking about your musical influences, and, and not everybody is. Why do you think it's important that people know who influenced
2: you? Well, I'm just so inspired and have so much love for and so much gratitude for my mentors, my influences. It's like, okay, if you like me, you'll love this person.
0: Right,
2: you like me fine, but i i like i like me okay too, but I like professor Longer <laughs> a lot more <laughs> you know i mean i you know it gets the job done uh I like it all okay, it's pretty good, but professor Longer, oh we could go on for twenty four hours sure and i got to i never i i never met him, but um i knew his 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 late wife Alice. And, uh, uh, we got to do, we did some benefit shows for the family while she was still alive. And, uh, so I met the members of the members of the family and, um, but I never saw, I never got to New Orleans, uh, till after he passed on when touring. So, yeah, I did live there a little bit in 1970 for six months. But that's when nobody knew where he was. I, I never even heard his name mentioned.
0: Right. You've talked at length also about no, uh, another uh, artist who's associated with Christmas music, Vince Giraldi. Uh, you've recorded two albums of his music, including Christmas Time is Here and Skating and Linus and Lucy. What did you learn about Giraldi by playing his music?
2: Well, I don't play that much like Vince Guaraldi when it comes to improv. He was very much mainstream jazz improviser, and I'm very much a rhythm and blues improviser. Um, I just loved his tunes. I first heard him in '62, 1962 with Cast Your Fate to the Wind. And then uh, in 1965, I saw the first episode The first broadcast of the Charlie Brown Christmas, I was a fan of animation and comics. I went, oh, I got to see that. And we we all remember where we were. We all, most of us remember where we were the first time we heard Linus and Lucy on that. Right. And the next day I went to the record store and got the record. And then got all his other records and then had a tape recorder up to the TV for the next Peanuts episodes to get them all on tape. And he's the composer that I play the most songs of. And I played intermission piano for him a couple of times in 1971. Back then it was common in venues to have the main act and have somebody play at intermission. So I, I did that at a particular venue. And so I got to meet him a couple of times and I just switched from organ to piano. Uh, he was very encouraging. So I, I knew him a bit. Uh, later, I got to know his wife and his mom and his kids. And just, how did he come up with all that? If somebody asked me to come up with a piece, I wouldn't have anything. It right. has to happen by accident with me, but he was commissioned to come up with those pieces. And I've probably played 60 of his pieces over the years. I've, I've, actually, I've got a, volume three and volume four done to come out in the future. Wow. So the three composers I play the most songs of are Vince Giraldi, The Doors, and Professor Longhair. Right.
0: What insights did you get to, his, to, to either to his art, to his playing, that you could only get by playing his music?
2: Well, he always had something really interesting going on in the left hand other than the normal kind of comping that modern jazz players normally do, which he did that also. But he came from the boogie-woogie woogie players earlier in the century so he always had something really interesting in the left hand. And also the way he, when the song had different transitions, just beautiful the way he transcended, you know, made the transition from one part of the song to a different part of a song. And just the way he used certain chords um, and just... You know, beautiful songs, you know. I play, I play them a bit differently. I mean, I'll often use a James Booker bass rather than a Vince Guaraldi bass. But um, again, James Booker gave me the means to have the left hand be the band, right? You know, and the right hand can do what it does, and that's that's really is what the New Orleans approach is about. A lot of it is the left hand. Grounds the whole thing. The left hand is the band, right, and then the right the right hand is like the singer.
0: One thing I've, I've been thinking about recently is how important that Char, uh, Charlie Brown Christmas soundtrack is, because it it introduced generations of young people to jazz and to instrumental music. And, you know, I think it often gets overlooked, but that. You know that 25-minute uh, cartoon introduces kids starting at uh, four and five to instrumental music uh, and to jazz, uh, well before they hear uh, you know hear it any other way.
2: Yeah, and it's just such. I mean, Vince's music—it's jazz, and even more than that, it's Vince Guaraldi music to me. Right. Just like. Like, it's James Booker, New Orleans. We well, yeah, but he's, to me, he's James Booker music. Like, like first and foremost. Right. To me, really, each musician is their own genre. And I realize you kind of need genres to kind of, in the record store, and you're, you're okay as long as you don't, don't believe it. Right. <laughs> genres, genres, genres tell you what somebody does not do. Right. But it does not tell you what they do. You have to hear them to say to hear what they do. But if you see James Booker in Rhythm and Blues, you'll go, okay, it's not a Bach album. It's not right. a classical album. You know, it's not a mainstream jazz album, but it doesn't tell you anything about who they are. So as long as one realizes that, then um genres are fine. They're kind of you know, a way to kind of organize things, but it, it doesn't tell you anything. It just kind of gives you the means maybe to go through the library and find stuff easier.
0: your 1982 album, December clearly struck a note as it was the sort of certified triple platinum, which is amazing for an instrumental album. Why do you think that album took off the way it did?
2: I have no idea. You know, I just, um, just the way the seasons were so extremely distinct in Eastern Montana, there was really two winters, two Springs and, and two autumns. I just, uh, every every record I do is is winds up being based on a theme, and that was the winter album. Right. Uh, no idea, you know. It just it's really up to each listener. What do they like? You know. Sure. I'm just trying, I'm just trying to serve the theme of the album. When I do albums, it's kind of like if you're going to do a soundtrack for a movie, you would play to serve the film. And so the al- when I do an album, it's like it's a movie, but there's no movie. But I'm still trying to stay basically in that theme, whether it's winter, autumn, or Vince um, and I think And I got that from the Charlie Brown Christmas album, which was thematic, and the first Doors album, which was like both those albums were like one song with 11 parts. It's like the whole thing was like one thing. Um, so when I started recording later, I just said well that's that's how I do it.'
0: feel about that uh, that album as a body of music now, you know, more than 30 years later?
2: Well, when I do record, I wait a long time and listen I don't listen for a while and I listen just to make sure is this the best I can do with what I got? And even more than that, do all the songs appear to be kind of alive and breathing and is this the right order for the songs? Um, that kind of will tell a story from beginning to end. And, uh, so luckily I don't regret anything I've done. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's lots of people I like be- a lot better than me, but, you know, they seem to get the job done. I go, okay, we can put it out.
0: I, I particularly enjoy your version of Carol the Bells because I often find it treated more boisterously than you handle it. What thoughts did you have when you were approaching the challenge of how to work out an arrangement for that song?
2: Um, I, I grew up with that song in Montana. Um, I don't know, just kind of, I guess it's normally sung a lot faster, I think, but just kind of, the piano kind of, kind of told me what to do. And then, to kind of have a middle section, uh, a bit in the way that Joseph Bird, he'd have different things in the middle of his songs on that, on that Christmas yet to come album. Um, so I may have the middle be, um, variations, you know, kind of a different staying in the song and the tempo, but varying it. Um, The piano kind of told me what to do. The music always tells me what to do, actually. I can't always do it, but it always tells me what to try to do.
0: Which is more satisfying working out a distinctive arrangement to a well-known piece of, of music particularly in this case Christmas music or writing a fresh piece of music that seems appropriate to the theme?
2: Well I never I've never composed on purpose. Something happens a couple of times a year um, and kind of both if both In both those situations, if it feels like, oh, yeah, this can be in a concert, this can be on a record. um, I wouldn't call it satisfying as much as I think (laughs) this (laughs) will (laughs) work. Or it it is satisfying when I can play arrangement, when I can play the arrangement, you know, up to tempo. And I go, okay, I think I know where I'm going to put this. There's always a place. Someplace, you know, sometimes there'll be something and there'll be a use for it like 20 years later even.
0: Thanks to George Winston for the time and the talk. I really enjoyed that conversation and digging in on Joseph Bird, who I only really knew from his analog synth Christmas album, A Christmas Yet To Come. Before we go, I want to shout out Jonathan and Julia Preetus at Ranking the Beatles podcast. On each episode, they rank a Beatles song going from Jonathan's least favorite to his favorite. Last holiday season, we did a podcast crossover and we ranked the Beatles' fan club Christmas records. I'll put a link to that up in the show notes. During it, we all liked one of the few actual Christmas songs in those Christmas records. "Christmas Time is Here Again, from 1966, I think. And this week on Ranking the Beatles, they actually talk about that song with their Beatle podcast buddies, the hosts of the Blotto Beatles podcast. They dig into Beatles minutiae because that's their thing. But if you want more on Beatles and Christmas, the episodes worth checking out. Thanks to AF the naysayer for the theme music and thanks to you for listening. We'll wrap up today with one more from Dale Watson. This is one of the few standards on Christmas time in Texas. It's his version of The Christmas Song. Talk to you next week.
1: Chestnuts roasting Jack Frost nipping at your nose your tight carols being sung by a choir And folks dressed up like Eskimos
2: And